purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind. But we've also seen uh, challenges as uh, two food crises, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the 1930s, and the WTO has remained solid in the midst of this tempest. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation. 751 Europeans have been elected to directly represent citizens from 28 different nations in all their diversities, with all their differences, with all their different outlooks on lives. But you all come together here. again. We're back as promised with a follow-up of the recent judgment of the International Criminal Court, the prosecutor versus Ahmed Al-Mahadi. If you missed our first episode on the case, check it out at Noma's phone, on SoundCloud, or iTunes. So, after reading the judgment by the ICC, I sat down with Adrian, another member of our team, to talk about a few thoughts and questions that came to mind. But before we reflect on these, I should probably give you a brief background of the facts and catch you up on a summary of the court's judgment. Mr. Amahadi was charged with intentionally directing attacks against 10 religious and historical buildings in Timbuktu, Mali, around the 30th of June and July 11th, 2012. Mr. Amahadi is between 30 and 40 years old, which I have to admit is a pretty rough estimate, but that's what the judgment says. Um, and he belongs to a family recognized to have very extensive knowledge of Islam. Uh, in fact, he's considered to be an expert on the Quran and other religious matters. The conflict in this case only took place within the territory of Mali. The Islamic groups Al-Qaeda and Ansar Dine took control of the region to impose their pretty extreme political and especially religious beliefs of Islam. They accomplished this with the help of a morality task force known as Hesba. Mr. Al-Mahadi was specifically recruited as leader of this organization because of his expertise on religious matters. So then maybe uh, it's significant to note that all 10 sites destroyed were dedicated to religion and were not associated with the military at all. Um, As well, it's good to note, especially for international listeners, most are protected as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Once the evidence was presented, uh, the chamber of the ICC could plainly see that Mr. Al-Mahadi exercised a level of control over the tax on the sites and fully participated in the destruction. Also, due to his voluntary guilty plea, it's pretty clear he knew exactly what was going on, so the culpability in this case is pretty straightforward. The prosecution submitted to the chamber that Mr. Al-Mahadi should be sentenced between 9 and 11 years. Once the judgment came out, the the chamber unanimously sentenced him to nine years imprisonment. It's the lower end of the recommendation. So I guess the question is, why? The first important thing to address is the question of gravity. Um, And it's the first thing actually addressed by the court in their judgment, and for good reason. 
The gravity threshold is basically the limit on the exercise of the ICC's jurisdiction. This simply means the crime has to be pretty serious for the court to take action, and this requirement is one of the two main principles of the ICC. In regards to Ahmadi, it has been one of the most criticized aspects of the case from the very beginning. Okay, so the ICC should intervene when the case involved is a really big, important case. The thing is that here, the crime was more or less the destruction of property, right? So, yeah, this guy's destroyed some buildings. So the issue here is why should the international community care about that? The chamber answers this directly, stating that in their view, I quote, even if inherently grave, crimes against property are generally of lesser gravity than crimes against persons, end quote. However, they are taking this crime seriously, especially within the given context. And I think it's pretty important to understand and highlight why a con- contextual interpretation is needed. Exactly. And that is what is I find of relevance in this case, at least culturally relevant. I mean, the ICC is actually recognizing that while in Western cultures, buildings might not be as important or some buildings might not be as important. For people in Mali, those places were sacred and had a deeper meaning and impact in society. The thing is... They were not only religious buildings, but also had a symbolic and emotional value for the inhabitants of Timbuktu and Mali, and as well as the international community. Destroying the mausoleums of which people had an emotional attachment was, I quote, a war activity aimed at breaking the soul of the people of Timbuktu. This was motivated by religious discrimination by Ansardine to eradicate any opposing religious practices within Timbuktu. So this kind of makes us think... Is the measure of gravity by the court becoming contextual? And does that matter? Next, the court addresses Mr. Almadi's conduct to try and assess his degree of of participation uh, and discover any aggravating and mitigating factors. The court didn't find any aggravating factors. I mean, the the prosecutor tried to submit that Almadi abused his position as head of Hezbollah, but this couldn't be proven. In fact, initially, in his position as head of Hezba, Almari advised against the destruction of these sites. I guess this brings us to the two mitigating factors, that definitely being one of them. The other being the way he carried out the crime. In all but one of the sites, Almari advised against using a bulldozer to ensure that no damage was done to the graves adjacent to the buildings. So you mentioned before that he was very knowledgeable about religious matters. And I think it was also talked about that he was a scholar and that he was a very, had a positive role in the community. Yes, unfortunately, that was not made relevant to the reasoning of the case. However, we cannot forget Mr. Ahamadi pled guilty and even, and even gave a clear and detailed account of his exact actions. And subsequently, it was this admission of guilt early on that would lead to the agreement between the prosecution and the defense that the sentence would fall between 9 and 11 years. This is essentially a plea bargain. There is precedent for this on the international criminal law, but this would be the first time that it has been used in the ICC. The Rome Statute, specifically Article 65, Paragraph 5, states that the agreement is not necessarily binding on the court. So that means that the court had to 
uh, be uh, in favor of this agreement or approve of this agreement or, ha or they wanted the agreement to happen. Okay. But regardless, it is interesting to note that plea bargaining, um, maybe contrary to popular belief, isn't really a widely um, used concept internationally. Uh, it isn't used at all, for example, in the Netherlands, where the courts are, um, and a number of other countries. Uh, it would be curious to know the motivation of the court uh, in taking this approach. This kind of makes me think, or I guess we could consider whether or not maybe plea bargaining could now be a part of a new strategy for the ICC uh, to try and co encourage cooperation from governments of nationals who commit crimes in violation of the Rome Statute. The option for a lesser sentence could lead to more guilty pleas, and better cooperation could lead to a lot easier and more frequent convictions. I think the most significant change this could mean, however, is going back to the topic we brought up in the first podcast, this observation that this could be a new strategy of the ICC to go after smaller fish, lower criminals, um, people that are not normally the main players in these international crimes, switch the focus from only the worst possible violators. So take a strategy more like the previous tribunals? Yeah, exactly, Adrian. Maybe it will become more practical for the court to build up cases against lower-ranking individuals, like the tribunals did in the past. As they build up evidence in these cases, it may then be more accessible for the court to pursue the level of criminals it originally set out to prosecute. Anyway, I guess at the end of the day, the case wasn't packed with any surprises. We posed a lot of questions in this podcast to get you as listeners to think a little bit about the ICC's role in international criminal law uh, and the methods the court uses for its reasoning. Our speculations on the future strategies of the court, however, will remain to be seen. But I will just leave you actually with one last thing. If you have caught the news recently, you may have noticed a number of African countries have vowed to remove themselves as signatories to the Rome Statute. This is a big deal because it will also be the first time since the creation of a court that, the, that any country has opted to renounce the court's jurisdiction. The court has been widely criticized by African countries, so maybe this was foreseeable. However, this is a topic for another day and maybe a future case note. Until then, thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.